Good morning, CCSC. My name is Angela, and I'll be reading today's scripture, which comes from Luke chapter 12, verses 40 to 48. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Amen. Now let's give our full attention to the preaching of God's word. Thank you, Angela. Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. It's my privilege to share God's word with us this morning. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father God, we turn to you and we turn to your word. And we ask that your truth would shine brightly and it would burn in our hearts as it did in the disciples' hearts on the way to Emmaus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two Advents in the Bible. The first Advent or arrival is Christmas. And the second Advent that we see in the Bible is the return of Jesus. And this parable is about the return of Jesus. And it's so important that we understand what's going to happen on that day because that will have massive implications on how we live our lives up until that point. When Jesus returns, it's going to be more than just who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. When Jesus returns, we will all stand in judgment and he will determine and mete out rewards and punishments. And that will impact our experience in eternity. The lives we live now, this short window of life we have before Jesus returns, will directly impact our experience in either heaven or hell. In this parable, Jesus is the master who returns at a time that his servants are not expecting. None of us here know exactly the hour when Jesus will return. If anyone claims to know such that hour, don't listen to them. And it says here that he will reward and punish them based on how they lived in his absence. Jesus will reward us based on how we lived in his absence. And our rewards in heaven for believers will not be uniform. Because our faithfulness is not uniform. We all have different degrees of faithfulness based on our station in life, position in life the talents God has given us and blessed us with. And for unbelievers, their punishment in hell, as we'll see, will also not be uniform because their unfaithfulness and evil and sin in this life 
varies from one person to another. And so the guiding principle for rewards and punishments we see here in verse 48. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand all the more. And we're going to return to this guiding principle throughout this sermon. The first point this morning is this. Promotions in heaven are based on performance on earth. We see this in verses 42 and 43. Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. This is what we would call a promotion. The master entrusted his servant with responsibilities and tasks He excelled at it, and as a result, he was promoted, given greater responsibilities over greater possessions. And it's important to note that this in no way contradicts what we believe about the gospel, that we are saved by God's grace alone through faith in Jesus alone. Salvation is God's free gift. If we repent, confess our sins, acknowledge I am a sinner, we trust in Jesus who lived a perfect life and on the cross he died for my sins and placed my faith in him, that's how we are saved. We're not contradicting that. The gospel says we are saved by placing our faith in Jesus' performance. That's salvation. Rewards, however, are based on our faithfulness and our performance. Your experience in heaven will be based on your faithfulness on this side of heaven. Promotions are based on performance. It's not how we get into heaven, but it will determine what we get when we're in heaven. And the servant, why is he promoted? He's not promoted because he's the smartest or he's the richest or he's the most gifted. And this is good news for those of you here who's not the smartest and the richest and the most gifted. He is promoted because he is faithful and he is wise. You can be faithful and wise without being the smartest and without being the richest, without having certain degrees or amount of wealth. Jesus tells us elsewhere that in heaven, the first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus is basically saying the heavenly value system is different than our earthly value system. Even among Christians, we're still not perfectly aligned with Jesus's value system because it's really hard to because we're just worldly and short-sighted at times. But Jesus is saying those who we deem to be first in this life, the richest, the smartest, the most gifted. Jesus is saying, you'll be surprised. In heaven, it's not going to be what you think. That those you deem are last, who aren't very gifted, who aren't very smart, because of their faithfulness and wisdom, will actually end up being first in heaven. The servant is promoted because he is faithful and he is wise. So those nobodies that we may overlook, Jesus does not overlook them. He will reward them based on their faithfulness and wisdom. 
Jesus says, who is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household and give them their portion of food at the proper time? The servant is faithful while the master is away. So this is the time for us to be faithful while Jesus is away. And he is faithful with what? And again, I hope this is very encouraging. He is faithful with ordinary things. He's faithful with giving their portion of food at the proper time. Something so ordinary, Jesus recognizes and he rewards. I think sometimes we feel like we need to make some big splash to impress Jesus. We have to make a big splash in order to get big rewards in heaven. That's not true. Maybe you think, Ah, the only way I'm going to get a big reward. I, I got to go on missions. I got to go overseas my entire life. I got to bring my whole family overseas. If God calls you there, then yes. But for many of us here, God's not calling us there. He's calling us to be here and to be faithful here. You don't have to be in ministry unless you're called. And so this is good news because Jesus is just calling us to be faithful in the ordinary things in life, feeding your kids, changing their diapers, cleaning the house, drop-offs and pickups. That's pleasing to God. Caring for your aging parents, driving them to their doctor's appointments, paying their bills, checking their mail, that is pleasing to God. Let's not equate faithfulness with results. They're not the same thing. But that's really difficult because we live in a very results-oriented culture. Shohei Otani is not getting paid for his faithfulness. You can argue that there are many major league players and minor league players who are just as faithful as Shohei to their craft, to their sport. But they will never see a contract of that size. Shohei is getting paid for results. And it's hard, for not, it's hard for us to not also view life this way. But Jesus, in this parable we see, rewards faithfulness. And he sees everything. Because as Christians, we acknowledge we can't control results. So much is out of our hands. You can't control how your kids are going to turn out as much as you want to. You can't make your teenager love Jesus. I can't make anyone believe in Jesus as a pastor when I share the gospel. This servant is faithful in the ordinary things. He is also wise with resources and time. He gives them their portion of food at the proper time. There are two Greek words for time, chronos and kairos. I almost didn't even look it up because I thought it was going to be chronos. I did look it up, and I was surprised that it was kairos. We would never know in the English. What's the difference? Chronos is just telling time. It's 5 o'clock. It's the minutes and hours and days. Kairos is interpreting time. And so Kronos would say it's 5 p.m. Kairos would say it's rush hour. Pre-2001, September 11th was just any other day in September. No different than the 10th, 12th, 9th, or 8th. 
Post-2001, it takes on whole new meaning. Kairos says it's just 2011. I mean, sorry, September 11th. Kairos would say it's 9-11. There's a difference. This servant is wise because, not because he can just tell time, but because he can tell Kairos. He understands the season. There's an example of this in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. For from day to day, men came to David to help him until there was a great army like an army of God, of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, 200 chiefs and all of their kinsmen under their command. What David needed more than seasoned warriors were men who understood the seasons. What good is it to have this massive army of skilled warriors if you don't know when to attack, how to attack, how to defend? Michael Burry, pre-2008, he predicted the housing market bubble and crash. These bubbles happen because there's an overvaluation of the price of houses. And when that bubble bursts, the value of those houses dropped rapidly. He saw it. He predicted it. It was an unpopular opinion. He bet against the housing market and made $725 million for his investors. Jesus, when he returns in the second advent, he's going to bring a needle and he's going to pop our bubble. He's going to show us how we have overvalued a lot of wrong things in this life. And he's going to show us what really is valuable. He's not literally going to bring a needle, but 1 Corinthians 3 said he's going to bring fire, and that's what he's going to use. Let me read for us 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This fire that Jesus is talking about and will bring is for the church, is for believers, it's not hellfire. We're not talking about punishment. That's not what this, the purpose of this fire is. The purpose of this fire is to reveal and expose. It's going to burn up what we've built and accumulated in this life and what is actually of eternal value and what will actually carry over. It's only the things that are made out of gold, silver, precious stones. Everything else made out of wood, hay, and straw will burn up. The fire will expose things that we cannot see. Things such as motives. Motives really matter to Jesus. It will also expose the means by which we attain certain results. The means matter to Jesus. But those are things we cannot see. Charles Spurgeon says this. Think what it will be to have your motives all brought to light, to have it proven that you are godly for the sake of gain, 
that you were generous out of ostentation or zealous for love of praise, that you were careful in public to maintain a religious reputation, but that all the while everything was done for self and self only. Self-promotion in this life will not lead to a promotion in the next. We can fool people here. There is no fooling Jesus. This is a warning, but this is also an encouragement because Jesus will see all of the unseen sacrifices and acts of faithfulness. Jesus does pay attention to all of those small deeds. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, whoever gives this little one a cup of cold water, he shall not lose his reward. Jesus will not overlook when we care for the overlooked, and he really cares about that. So what will remain after the revealing fire? God judged Israel in the Old Testament, and that punishment and discipline revealed their heart. Amos chapter 3, verse 12. Thus says the Lord, as a shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. What is Amos talking about here? He's giving this analogy of a shepherd rescuing one of its sheep from the mouth of a lion. And they want to identify what animal it was that was killed and also whose it may have belonged to. And sometimes there's just a leg or an ear left over. And God is saying, after this purging or revealing fire of God's discipline, what was left from Israel? He says all that was left was a corner of a couch and a part of a bed meaning the vestiges of God's people were symbols of sensuality and luxury. There were no signs of true religion, love for the Lord, and worship. Similarly, Jesus' fire on Judgment Day will expose what truly remains. What's left after the fire burns away all of our motives and the means by which we obtain things. Practically speaking, we are most faithful when our kairos directs our chronos. When our sense of time and season impacts how we use our time and spend our lives. And as believers, this is a good reminder, we are in the in-between, the first and second advent of Christ. We are called as disciples of Jesus to live with purpose, in particular priorities, to the glory of God, to worship God, to spend and to steward what he has given us to make disciples to share the gospel, to honor him. And those rewards for faithfulness will be meted out. And we'll see as well, for our unfaithfulness, there will be loss of reward. 
What about unbelievers on the day of judgment? The second point, their degrees of punishment in hell and those degrees of punishment are just. The three servants who are unfaithful and they represent unbelievers, one was cut to pieces, one received a severe beating and one a light beating. Based on what? based on their position, their knowledge, and the way they treated others. And it's really important that we note here how they treated others really matters. The one who beat his fellow servants got drunk. He was cut into pieces. And this is a reference to a form of punishment in the ancient world, agonizing, torturous, and painful This servant didn't recognize that he was a fellow servant. The gospel teaches us that we are all sinners. We all need the grace of God. Those who truly understand that will not treat others with contempt. They will not look down on others and be disparaging. They will not be puffed up with pride and think they are better. And here is a picture of someone who has no sense of the gospel. He treats his fellow servants terribly. We see throughout scripture how much God cares about how we treat other people. And I think that will be a big factor in how we are rewarded or punished on the day of judgment. How we treat other people. Jesus summarizes the law. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Why were the Israelites disciplined and punished in the Old Testament? It wasn't just for idolatry. If you read through it carefully in the minor prophets, so much of it is because of how they treated their fellow people. How they overlooked those who had little power or status in society. How they abused and took advantage of the weak and the vulnerable did not defend those who needed defending. Job talks about his own righteousness because he's trying to figure out why am I going through this season of suffering? He knows he's not perfect, but he knows this suffering is not because of his sin. And he defends himself By saying this in Job 29, I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. How does Job defend himself? He doesn't talk about how much he gave to the church or how often he attended church and his position or anything like that. He says, look at how I cared for other people. Here is a picture of righteousness. And I believe on the day of judgment, we'll be held accountable, as Jesus says, for every careless word that we speak. On this day of judgment, all racism will be punished. Every hate crime, every hateful word spoken, every assault, 
every abuse, every war crime. No one will say that the punishment is too harsh. No one will try to appeal. They will know that Jesus, who is the Holy One, is just in his sentencing. These three servants are examples of what awaits unbelievers when Jesus returns. And let's not think that the one who received the light beating versus the severe beating, that somehow hell will be bearable for them. That is untrue. The Bible clearly shows that everyone who is in hell, it is terrible and it is eternal. So what practical value is there of this thinking about punishment, thinking about hell, degrees of punishment? I believe there is practical value in understanding this. And the first is it comforts the wronged. It's comfort for those who have been on the receiving end of injustice. I believe that our comfort in heaven is in part because Jesus will wipe away every tear. I believe our comfort in heaven is also in part because we know Jesus will bring about perfect justice and punish every evil and sin committed against you and in this world. Our justice on earth will never be perfect. It's virtually impossible to get a perfect one-to-one correspondence between a punishment and the crime. And our legal system at best, because we're human, is going to be flawed. It isn't immune to inaccuracies and partiality. There are things like plea bargaining, political connections, bribes, statute of limitations. Some criminals never get caught. Some just get a slap on the wrist. We all have a sense of injustice. That's why there are protests, riots, petitions. On the world stage, how can we adjudicate wars? and humanitarian crises, but Jesus knows. And I believe that those who do not know Jesus want to believe in Jesus because he will bring about justice. They feel helpless because there is no government, there is no army or group that can bring about perfect justice in this life that will always be unsettled And because of that, it is unsettling. But Jesus says, or God says in Isaiah 2, 4, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. Jesus will sift through all of history. He knows all of the conspiracies and backroom deals, atrocities, political maneuvering. He knows who fired the first shots, who committed the war crimes, and he will bring about perfect justice. And maybe you've experienced personal injustice. People have sinned against you. And they've gotten away with it. They're unrepentant. Jesus will bring about perfect justice. And that comforts the wronged. He will judge perfectly, punish perfectly. He will dot every I and cross every T. Hell in the Bible is described in at least three different ways, punishment, destruction, and banishment. By punishment, it's speaking about eternal suffering and torment. 
Hell is also described as a kind of destruction. It doesn't mean they cease to exist because hell is eternal. It means that they experience some kind of loss or ruin. It is also described as banishment, which is separation, isolation. And this makes sense because when we are sinned against, isn't it some kind of combination of those three? That when you have been sinned against, there's physical, emotional suffering, physical pain, trauma. There's also a sense of loss or ruin, a loss of innocence, a loss of identity, a loss of potential, a loss of a loved one or opportunity or a sense of worthlessness. There's also a social dimension to suffering and sin. There's separation. We can feel cut off or hopeless or alone. And that explains why Hell is described as punishment, destruction, and banishment. That punishment will be tailor-made for unbelievers based on their works in this life and the way that they've sinned against God and others. They will reap what they sow. No one will be over-punished or under-punished and there will be great agony on Judgment Day, but I don't believe there will be any arguing on Judgment Day. No one is going to disagree with Jesus, even unbelievers who are sentenced to hell, because they will stand before Jesus and know that he is holy and perfect and just, and they will see their sin exactly for what it is, and they will know what they deserve, and they will be silent. At the first advent, God was not soft on sin. Jesus was sent to the cross, and God was not soft on sin. At the cross, Jesus took all of the punishment we deserved, destruction and banishment. He took all of your sin if you have placed your faith in Jesus, and he canceled that record of debt. At the second advent, Jesus will not be soft on sin. He will punish all sin and all evil. David Mathis says this, In that day, every just cry for justice will be answered, and far more fully and finally than we are able to answer pleas for justice in this age. We will put our hands over our mouths as the risen, omnipotent lamb exacts perfect justice and his perfect righteousness with no excess and no compromise. The second practical point, this is a challenge to the church. By church, I mean those who grew up going to church, currently attend church, but are not Christians. You are familiar with Christianity in the gospel and the Bible because you attend church. This is a challenge to the church because like we learned in this parable, you'll be judged based on your knowledge. And your church experience, you have amassed for yourself a lot of knowledge about God. And you will be judged for that. You will be judged differently than those unbelievers who have never heard the gospel. They will also be sentenced to hell 
I know that's hard to hear, but there is salvation only through Jesus Christ. This is why we go on missions and share the gospel. There is only one mediator between God and man. And you will be judged more harshly those who are churched. What does this mean? Does it mean you stop going to church so you learn less? No, because you still don't believe in Jesus and you are not saved. This is a challenge for you. I hope you can think through this personally. Talk to your spouse, your friends. Where are you in your faith? Have honest conversations. God will judge the church to a higher standard than those who are not churched. And I believe that there are those who are church who have yet to make a commitment to Christ because on one end of the spectrum, maybe they think they're too sinful, that they need to be reach or attain a certain level of goodness before they can become a Christian. If that's you and you're just waiting, let me urge you, stop waiting. You don't need to attain some level of goodness or knowledge. If you know you're a sinner, you're qualified to be a Christian by repenting of that sin, placing your faith in Jesus, that he died for all of your sin, that you may have peace with God and be right with him. On the other end of the spectrum, there are those who are church who don't believe in Jesus because they don't believe they need Jesus. They look at Christians and they're like, they need Jesus. They need to believe in this God because they're just weak. I don't really need God. I'm good enough on my own. And if that is you, there is a brutal awakening awaiting you. And I want to urge you to really consider before Jesus, do you think you're good enough on your own? And the answer to that is no. But the gospel is freely offered by God's grace. If we would believe in Jesus, we might be saved. I want to close with this. There will always be chronos because time will go on for eternity. There is only one kairos between the first and second coming of Christ. How we spend our kairos will determine how we spend our chronos in eternity. This is the one window. I pray that ordinary faithfulness encourages those who think your lives are so ordinary. Continue to be faithful in your ordinary day-to-day lives. Consider what God has given you and how you can steward that and leverage that for his glory and for the unbelievers the church, would you think long and hard? I would love to talk to you. Another pastor would love to talk to you about where you are in your faith. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would grant saving faith to those who know about Jesus, but yet to believe in him. Only you can soften hearts and regenerate. I pray to those who do know Jesus. I pray that you would give them grace 
and kairos to be faithful in this life, to look forward to what is to come with eagerness and faithfulness. We pray this in Jesus' name.